Now, got a sound expert here? Okay. Someone, go to college and take sound. Is that possible? You think I can back up? Yeah? How's that? Are we better there? I don't understand, sweetie. Talk. We're recording. All right, please turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'll be reading chapter 15, verses 12 through 20. 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 20. Now if Christ is proclaimed, is raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even to be found misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise. If it is true that the dead are not raised, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. And then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Father, thank you for this gospel which is the Gospel week in and week out throughout the year. But we thank You for this celebration when we celebrate what happened during the Passover on that Friday and after the Sabbath on that Sunday in A.D. 33. That You justified everyone for whom Jesus died by raising Him from the dead. May we taste it, see it, hear it, embrace it, repent because of it, and walk with our Savior by the power of His resurrection through the Holy Spirit, I pray. Amen. The goal of everyone who is a Christian was stated by the Apostle Paul in his own Christian life when he wrote in Philippians chapter 3, verses 10 to 11. I press on that I may know. Him and the power of His resurrection 
and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, so that by any means possible, I, Paul, may one day attain the resurrection from the dead. But all of that that he said there, representing all believers, is a delusion. If Jesus from Nazareth, the carpenter, did not rise from the dead as a human being in a human, now immortal, body. And that's why our Easter text is 1 Corinthians 15 this morning because it makes it clear that truth. This is not a religious faith He's raised for me. Christianity at its core it does, is not about your experience. It is about people who lied or who told the truth about what they encountered in human history. And so as we look at 1 Corinthians 15, I want to lead you to, to what Paul says about what would not be true if Christ was not actually raised from the dead. Or the other way to say it is, turn it around. Therefore, these things are true precisely because Jesus was and is resurrected, immortal now forever. So the first thing I want you to put your eyes upon is verse 17, because this is foundational to everything. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 17, Paul writes, And if Christ has not been raised, the result is this, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Your faith is useless and you are not forgiven of your sins if He was not raised. Why, Paul? Why do you say that? Well, because the reverse is true. Because Jesus was raised from the dead, Therefore, you can now know for sure that if you believe in Him, your sins have been forgiven. And that's huge. Because if the Creator of the universe and the Creator of our very person, our soul, our self-consciousness, if He holds our sins against us. If He holds us guilty for what we have truly done, then there is no hope that any of the promises of Scripture are true. Romans 8.1 would not be true. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If Jesus did not rise from the dead. 
You see, what Paul says here in 1 Corinthians 15, if he did not rise, you're still in your sins, is the foundation of every promised blessing that God gives to sinners. He won't hold our sins against us who believe. Who believe in the historical fact of Jesus' resurrection. Everything hangs on forgiveness. God's disposition toward us sinners must be changed or we're doomed. And the resurrection of Jesus is the proof that His disposition toward us has been changed. And so you ask, well, how is the resurrection connected to our forgiveness of sins? Isn't it the death of Jesus on the cross where He, where he bore the imputation of our sins to Him and then He was punished? The wrath of God was poured out on Him? Isn't that how we are forgiven? Isn't that what Paul said at the beginning of 1 Corinthians chapter 15? For, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture. So, so the answer is yes! That's where God nailed our sins, punished our sins, satisfied His wrath and His justice Absolutely. But it's not disconnected to what Paul goes on to say. That Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. That He was buried. He was in Joseph's tomb. And He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. So yes, it is on the cross where He bore our sins. But if He did not rise, then He did not bear our sins. That's the point. I want you to turn to Romans 4 for a moment to see this connection. Remember, Romans chapter 3, most of 4, it's about the substitutionary atonement, the work of Jesus in His bloody death. And then, through faith and grace alone, sinners come to Him and they are justified before God by nothing they do but by faith alone. And He comes to the end then in chapter 4. Let me just pick up in verse 22. And that is why... His faith, that is Abraham's faith, was counted, imputed to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in Him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord. Here's how Paul summarizes it. Yes, He who was delivered up for our trespasses, sins, and He was raised for our 
justification. So yes, Jesus paid the penalty for our sins on the cross. He made propitiation. He secured forgiveness by His substitutionary death. And because of Jesus' perfect human life lived in our place, because He therefore was the sinless human, the sinless Lamb of God, His work on the cross was so complete and perfect Therefore, God raised Him from the dead to validate our forgiveness. Our justification before God because death could not hold Him. Proof! He didn't die for His sin. He had none. And that's how Peter preached on the day of Pentecost using David. Death could not hold this man as it could hold every one of us from Adam on. It couldn't. And thus, Paul says, he was raised for our justification before God, which means you are absolutely forgiven. In Jesus' life lived is put in your place. He is your righteousness if you have truly been born again. His resurrection proves Jesus' perfect righteousness on our behalf. We are saved from our sin and from the consequences of sin because of His death, burial, and resurrection. That's why Paul writes in Romans 5, 9, since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more, see judgment day is still ahead of us, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. And then he goes on to say, because He lives is why we will be saved. If He did not rise, he does not live as a resurrected man to save us. Every human being in this room right now, whether they feel it or not, is desperate for divine forgiveness. Desperate for the sin problem that you have, the problem, that barrier between you and your Creator, which is bringing justice in wrath towards you. Unless that's dealt with, that's all that lay ahead. And Paul says in verse 17 of 1 Corinthians 15, because Jesus rose from the dead, we are no longer in our sins. Our sins are no longer hell against us. And that's why Paul says now in verse 14 of 1 Corinthians 15 which is the second thing I want us to see. And if Christ has not been raised then our preaching is in vain. It's worthless. 
in your faith is in vain. Absolutely. Because it's a farce. You're, you're deluded that God has forgiven your sins if Jesus did not really factually, historically come out with that same body transformed into an immortal human body. And so, have your eyes been opened, the eyes of your heart, to the testimony of Peter, Matthew, Thomas, Paul, and the women, and many, many others who proclaimed, we saw Him, we ate fish with Him, we talked with Him after His brutal death. After rigor mortis set in and He was hard and cold. Have your eyes been opened to their testimony? It is founded on solid ground. Your life, if you have truly repented and turned to walk and to follow this living Jesus against your culture, and against your own sinful nature, and to live a repentant, ongoing life, it is not in vain. You can go on walking in the directions Jesus has laid down for you in Holy Scripture. You can bank everything you have. You can bank your entire being on the promises of God to you. Because Christ has been raised. This sermon right now is not in vain. Sermons going on in churches throughout the earth this Easter are not in vain because Jesus has been raised from the dead. All the hardships, pain of life itself, much less the Christian life, of the sacrifice, the self-denial, none of that will let you down because your faith is not in vain. But His resurrection from the dead proves that you have been reconciled to God. (coughs) And if that leads you to a miserable 65 years, it's not in vain. If it leads you to persecution, it's not in vain if it leads you because of the lack of the opportunity of being married and you don't get to express your sexual nature, it's not 
in vain. Which leads to the third thing we see in Paul's text. And that's, there's such a thing as truth. Objective truth is at stake in the resurrection of Jesus. Notice, really verse 15, but let me just get the flow from verse 14 again. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. And your faith is in vain. It's worthless. And not only that, watch this. We are even found to be misrepresenting God. Well, that's a nice way to put it, ESV. It's pseudo-martyrios. Let's just say it like the old translation. He's not just misrepresenting. It says the same thing, but it's not as harsh as Paul says. He says, if, if Christ has not been raised, then we are false witnesses. We are the people who sit in the seat under oath before a jury and say we tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, but we willingly, volitionally lie. That's what he says. We are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified about God that He raised Christ whom He did not raise. If it is true that the dead are not raised. This issue of the resurrection of Jesus, here's Easter Sunday, it is not a subjective religious issue. It is an issue of truth versus a lie. And if the eyewitnesses are lying, Paul says clearly, Christianity is a farce. It's worthless. It's a lie. It's deceptive. See, Paul's point is, the eyewitnesses are not misrepresenting God. We are not false witnesses precisely because God did raise Jesus from the dead. And we bear witness to what is factually true. I mean, I hate that I even have to say this this way. But Paul means, but I have to because of our day and age, he means there is such a thing as truth. True truth, as Francis Schaeffer would say. Objective truth that is absolutely independent of whether you believe it, like it, think about it, or even know about it. There's such a thing as truth, and truth to be proclaimed, despite what our universities teach today, despite what our culture is buying into more and more, 
today. It is a sad thing that it takes bravery to stand up in our day and our age and to proclaim historical truths like the carpenter from Nazareth really was resurrected from the dead. Strong evidence by eyewitnesses. There's such a thing as truth. I either either got, historically here, I either got on the off-ramp on the 405 this morning at La Cienega or at Sentinella. One or the other. You may never be able to ascertain which one was true or not, but there is a truth. I got on one of those off-ramps and that's unchangeable. There is such a thing as historical truth. And Christianity with human eyewitnesses is proclaiming He got on an off-ramp by God's resurrection of Jesus from the dead of which we are undoubtable eyewitnesses again and again for five weeks. And Paul down the road. You say that kind of stuff today, you silly, silly religious man. Don't you understand? That's just religious truth. That's not true truth. It's religious opinion. No. Either the eyewitnesses lied, told a blatant, self-conscious, life-deceiving untruth, or they told an objective, historical truth that that hardened, dead human being came back to immortal human life. But we live in this day and age. You have to wake people up to that. It's sad that in our culture, (coughs) it's a brave thing to say, and it's even sadder that in many of our churches, it is a brave thing to proclaim moral truth. It's a brave thing to say that premarital sex is sin. It's wrong for everybody, no matter how in love you are. That it's not just wrong for those who feel it is wrong. It is a brave thing. Our culture's making it a brave thing to say homosexual activity is wrong. Always wrong. And that's not a, a homophobic statement. It's not a bigoted statement. It is 
truth for the purpose of truly loving fellow sinners to guide them to the only One who could wash away their guilt and reconcile them to God so that on the judgment day they'll be raised to everlasting life. It is truth to say, dear heterosexual, who is spurring God's glory, spitting in His face because you are unrepentantly living in non-marital sexual activity with another human being. I tell you because I care about you. I want the best for you which is to come to repentance and believe in the true Gospel of Jesus Christ who died for your sins and was raised from the dead so that you would walk in newness of life. You see, Christianity is the breath of fresh air that our culture desperately needs because it socks you right smack in the mouth with, there's a God. And therefore, there is truth. See, smart atheists know there's no such thing as truth. Really. It's all subjective up to whatever you feel truth. Smart ones, honest ones know that. But there is a God. That's why there's truth. There is factual truth. There's scientific truth. There's historical truth of what has happened in the past. And there is moral truth. And the central fact of history is that Jesus was raised from the dead. And whether people believe it, care about that statement or not, that fact of His resurrection has everything to do with every human soul's life and their eternity. I want you to turn for a moment to the book of Acts, chapter 17. See, here, here, here's the point. There's a world of difference between merely subjective religious talk or subjective religious disposition of a person on the one hand and an objective resurrection of the dead. So just, just picture yourself. You're going back in history. You enter Athens, Greece. You're about 400 years after Socrates. Plato and Aristotle lived there and taught and built schools. You're 25 years after Jesus from Nazareth was crucified on a cross. Okay, but, but you're a religious pluralist. You're an Athenian. You're a Stoic or an Epicurean or some other person who, who, who pigeonholes himself in some philosophy you go to this temple or you go to that temple and you worship idols and paganism, etc. And you love to hear new opinions. You live for it. You have a place for it. A big old meeting place where they can gather and hear new stuff. And then you get word there's this guy in the marketplace with his missionary band talking about some new religion. This 
Jesus thing. And so you invite Him to the Aeropagus. His name is Paul. Suppose Paul then gets up in front of all these Athenians. And he says, I worship Jesus Christ. He was a Jewish teacher 25 years ago in the land of Palestine. He worked wonders and healings and miracles. And his teaching was uncanny. He taught in parables. And his stories were filled with wisdom for life and how you should love and live. His wisdom is unsurpassed. And even in his dying on a brutal Roman cross, unlike most, he did not give in to his lower instincts of anger and revenge. His teachings have so strongly influenced many people of our sect throughout the known world now. We are His followers. Some call us Christians. And it is His example that can have a strong influence on your lives, dear Athenians. We have many of His sayings We've copied them for you. We would love for you to come and meet with us and study the great sayings of Jesus the Christ. We want you to be one of us and to be a follower of Jesus. And then He steps down. What would have been the response? Probably something like this. It's good. I like that. I would love to know these sayings. There's a lot I can probably add to my own religious outlook on life. The response to a message like that would have been tolerance, interest, smiles. He's a good speaker. Paul's got his guru. We have our gurus. Maybe there's some good stuff I can add over here and he can kind of be like one of my gurus. Works for you, Paul, right? Change your life around? Oh yeah, I was a terrible, terrible person. Let me tell you about it. My life has changed. Works for you. And my religion works for me. That's the response he would have gotten. Same response you get today, and you build churches on it. But what if Paul said, which he in fact did say in the Areopagus, picking up with verse 29? He's in the middle of his sermon. Being then God's offspring, you Athenians, and all of us throughout the world, in all cultures, We ought not to think that the divine, the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and the imagination of man. Whoa. He just said, 
Your idea of God is wrong. That has produced your religion. It is foundationalist. It's a delusion. That's what he just said. Verse 30, the times of ignorance. Oh, you mean we've been doing all this because we don't know truth? Yes! The times of ignorance God overlooked. Oh, here's the mercy. But now He commands all people everywhere to repent, including you Athenians. Repent from this paganism. Repent! Because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a human being whom He has appointed. Of this He has given assurance to all by raising Him, that man, from the dead. That was the end of His speech because they wouldn't let Him talk any longer. He was too impolite for the relativistic world of philosophy and religion. He talked as if there is truth and thus there is that which is absolutely wrong and sinful and needs to be repented of And there's a historical reality that God raised a human being from the dead by which He would judge the world. And they mocked Him. Some, listen, God had those there. But they shouted Him down. Discussions about subjective value of religion in our lives and how it makes us better people and our experience on the one hand in declarations about someone's resurrection from the dead, they're just not in the same category. And that's why the men of Athens laughed at him, mocked him, (coughs) and ridiculed him. And will you today. For us, Everything hangs on the marvelous fact of history that Jesus came back to resurrection life. Everything hangs on that, not on marvelous feelings in our heart. 25 years earlier, if we go from Athens... Jesus said in John 14:6, "I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No human being comes to God the Father. Except through me.
And Jesus rose from the dead to vindicate that claim. And thus Jesus has all authority, all power, and all right to tell us what is absolutely true. Because in the resurrection, God proved Him to be absolutely true. And that is exactly what verse 15 of 1 Corinthians 15 is about. Paul is saying, our claim is not wrong because Jesus really, truly, historically, objectively rose from the dead. And that statement is not at all dependent upon belief. It is either truly what has happened or it is false. And it's true. And the eternity of every soul in here is dependent upon what happens in their heart toward hearing that truth. And because it's true, that is why Preaching it, telling it, spreading it, persuading others concerning it is not in vain. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and our faith is in vain. But because He has been raised, it's not in vain. And now, fourthly, Notice verses 19 and 20. Paul writes, If in Christ we have hope in this life only, (coughs) then we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Christianity is not at its core about living a better, happier life down here on earth. That's not what it is about. Paul has a vision of Christianity which may lead to a more miserable human life because the choices you will make. He says, if our hope is for what happens in this life, we should be pitied if Christ did not rise. But because He rose, see what He says in verse 20? He's only the first fruits. This is the core of Christianity. He's only the first fruits of those other human beings who have died. And they won't stay dead because Jesus, the one who rose, will come back and then the mass resurrection will happen. That's Christianity. Because Jesus is raised, we Christians are not to be pitied. 
Because it is the greatest possible news ever because it leads to our changed life, living, yes, which leads to the promised, for sure, future, eternal resurrection from the dead. No matter what happens in this life. Listen to Paul for a second. This is what he said in St. Corinthians about Jesus apprehending him, changing his life. And remember, and Jesus looked at Paul in his resurrected body and he said, I'm going to show you how much you must suffer. And Paul writes this years later, with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, Danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false Christians, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, in the part from other things there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches who is weak and I'm not weak and who's made to fall and I'm not indignant no wonder Paul said if in Christ we have hope in this life only we are, of all people, most to be pitied. But as he said to the Thessalonians, when Jesus comes on that day to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed, because our testimony about the resurrection of Jesus from the dead was believed by you, church, in Thessalonia. If Christ has not been raised from the dead, then living for Him and trusting Him and following His will is a delusion. We should be pitied. We should be pitied as, a, as an insane person in a mental institution. But since he has been raised, but since he has been raised and he reigns and sits on David's throne forever and ever and ever and ever and ever as king, therefore are all of our obedience, all of our self-sacrifice, all of our self-denial, all of our loving others, our suffering, our persecution is not to be pitied because it is the greatest news possible.
even for the 147 or 50, I don't know what the number is now, of brothers and sisters in Jesus who were gunned down and slaughtered this week in Kenya precisely because they believe in the resurrection of Jesus. Their life wasn't in vain. And nor was their death ultimately. The resurrection of Jesus, finally then, it satisfies the deepest longing in the human soul. That we live forever in joy. The resurrection of Jesus, which secured the future physical bodily resurrection that is to come, is the answer to the cry of our self-conscious being that our life, whatever it is now, whatever family, however miserable, however wonderful it's been, whatever choices that we're going to make, that it will not end in pure emptiness and purposelessness at death. On the one hand, to just become non-existent, which for any logical person you know it means you've never really truly will have existed in this sense then. What are you but memory? You never will be conscious again to know that you ever did love, care, cherish family and parents and children and spouse, friends. It's as if you never were. It's all in vain. Or worse that there is a self-conscious ongoing existence as a person who will be justly condemned in the wrathful ongoing presence of God the only holy and true God but Paul writes in verses 17 and 18 And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. But Christ has been raised. And because Jesus has been raised, those who have fallen asleep in Christ, that's His term for those Christians whom they knew who have already died, they have not perished. They're alive with Christ. And they are waiting still with all the saints that day. Jesus Christ is risen indeed. And because Christ was raised, all those who have been united to Him by the Holy Spirit through new birth, shown by their repentance and faith in their life, they will be raised to live in the pure joy of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit forever. So I close 
with the words of the Apostle Paul of chapter 15. Hear them, dear believer. I tell you this, Christians. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. And this mortal body must put on immortality. And the mortal puts on immortality. Then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, my beloved brothers, I say it to you through Paul's words, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Rise with me, please. And we will be singing. How can we not sing with joy? That Christ died for us. And then He was raised for our justification. And as we are doing that, we will be passing out the communion elements. If you are a baptized believer, feel free to partake. We will hold them and pray over them together. But as before we sing, you know your role. Jesus is risen. Christ is risen. He is risen. Amen.